Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Thank you very much for joining us. Before we get started on this week's podcast, a really exciting announcement. Peter Hart's book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, is now available to pre-order on our website. That's right, pre-order the book. It'll be out in September, but get your hands on a copy early because anyone who pre-orders the book will also receive an exclusive behind-the-scenes interview with Peter Hart that includes wonderful audio from Gallipoli veterans telling their story in their own words. It's absolutely extraordinary. In many ways, it's even more exciting than the book, but the book's pretty good too. So get your hands on the book, pre-order it now on our website, and get that exclusive interview that you can download straight away, and then you'll get the book when it comes out in September. So Peter Hart's The Gallipoli Evacuation, now available on the Living History website, which is livinghistorytv.com. That website again, livinghistorytv.com. Get your hands on the book. It's going to be something really special. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Living History. Given all the doom and gloom, in the world today, I thought it was good to take a break from all of that and celebrate music, celebrate peace and celebrate love. So we're doing that on the back of a fantastic new movie that's just come out called Echo in the Canyon. And this documentary tells the story of the musicians who were living and working in the Laurel Canyon area of Los Angeles between 1965 and 1967. And we're talking some absolutely wonderful musicians here. We're talking the birds, the mamas and the papas, the Beach Boys, Buffalo Springfield, Eric Clapton was calling in to, to perform on albums. The Beatles were popping around. The Stones were calling in. This was just an, an explosive time of wonderful music coming out of Los Angeles in the mid-1960s. And this new movie, Echo in the Canyon, tells that story. And it's directed by Andrew Slater. And Andrew was the CEO of Capitol Records for many years and is a very established music journalist and producer. So he was very well placed to tell this story of what really was a golden era of music in the 1960s. And the story is presented by Jacob Dylan, the musician from The Wallflowers and Bob Dylan's son. And he is incredibly well placed to speak to these musicians, to hear their stories. And then they do a wonderful thing where they perform a lot of these songs. They reinterpret them and perform them. And it was just a really great movie experience. I really enjoyed it. I think they've done a wonderful job of talking about a really important era in the history of music. And so I was fortunate to speak to Andrew Slater, the director, via phone from Los Angeles. And here's what he had to say about Echo in the Canyon. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us on Living History. Oh, great to be here. Thanks, Matt. 
the first thing I wanted to say is congratulations because I absolutely loved the film and I think at a time when uh, obviously we've got our fair share of drama going on in the world, it was great just to to hear this great music, to see a, a new interpretation of these great songs and just, just hear the story. So congratulations on what is a really remarkable project. Uh, well, thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's nice to hear, uh, you know, when, when you mention uh, all the things sort of going on in the, in the world today, uh, you know, that time that we were trying to both honor and capture uh, with the film and the, and the record, you know, it, it really seemed like a time where, I don't know, kindness prevailed and the sort of idea of sharing, uh, each other's ideas was, uh, you know, was something that, uh, became the, I don't know, the bedrock for society at that time or, you know, the arts community at that time. And so, uh, so it was a nice, uh, perspective, uh, in relation to what we have going on you know, in a, in a current environment. Well, for those of us who, who haven't seen the movie, um, why don't you just give us an, an overview of, of the project and what you were trying to achieve? Well, I think sometimes in life, you know, you, you, you have to look from where you came from to figure out you know, where you're going to go next. And, and for me, that came at a particular moment after I had, uh, I was working at Capitol Records and I, I left and I was, you know, trying to, uh, what to do creatively next. And I've seen this film called Model Shop, which is a film by Jacques Demy in 68. And, you know, when the film came out in the 60s, uh, Vincent Canby, the critics in the New York Times, wrote that the main character of the film was the street in LA. And what it inspired in, in me was the idea of sort of going back to that time, that sort of age of innocence of, California music and uh, songwriting, and to sort of to look at the records that drew me to California. And when I did that, I, you know, Jacob Dylan was also sort of in a in a place in his career where he was trying to figure out what to do next. And I said, "Look, why don't we try to look at these songs and and you know see if there's something there?" And you know, the what we found was that the music of the birds and the beach boys and, and the Beatles, you know, were all kind of intertwined where they were all listening to each other and the echo of each band's ideas, both within their bands, uh, where there were multiple singers and multiple songwriters like the Springfield and, and the birds, you know, had Roger McGlynn and David Crosby and Gene Clark, that the ideas were bouncing between them. And then ultimately between the Beatles in England and, and the birds in LA and then, and the beach boys. And they all resided in Laurel Canyon at one time. And so it just sort of crystallized, uh, in our minds to try to capture some of that, uh, and both make an homage to that music with contemporary artists, Jacob's contemporaries, Beck and Regina Spector and Fiona to make something new out of something old, honor that, and then also find out what the stories were behind all of those songs, because behind every song is a story, and at that time, there were great ones in these songs. As you explored the uh, the music from, from the 60s in L.A., I mean, it was just such an amazing time for music. There was so much good stuff coming out. Did you did you begin to unravel the mystery a little bit of why 
there was just so much great music coming out of LA at this time that the elements that went into creating this uh, this golden period for music? I mean, I'm not sure if anyone, you know, can clearly define that. But what I would say is that, you know, with the emergence of the Beatles in 1964, clearly the idea of being in a band after young people saw A Hard Day's Night and the lifestyle of being a musician was depicted in such a fun-loving way, you know, people wanted to, to uh, you know, wanted to do that, and they either went to New York or LA to do it. And, you know, so I guess, you know, part of it is that when something like that happens and it attracts, you know, writers and singers to, to one particular place, uh, in the beginning of something, you know, you have very fertile ground for, for, for creating. You mentioned Jacob Dylan, and I, I thought he was an absolute natural in this role to, to present this story because the combination of him speaking to the musicians that were there in the 60s, but then also reinterpreting these songs was just something, uh, you know, really quite remarkable. Was he always a natural choice for you to, uh, to, to present this story? Well, clearly he has the necessary DNA <laughs> to, <laughs> to, you know, take the take the story of, uh, of the electrification of folk music and uh, the popular, uh, you know, the, the, the way that became popular in, in America. And so, but, you know, he, I, I think in all of those artists, whether it was Beck or uh, Fiona or Regina or Jacob, you know, you can see that the influences of that music of, and and in some cases the Buffalo Springfield, so I think you know that was the reason that we chose all those people. But you know Jacob also, you know, having an artist interview an artist is very different than having uh, you know an accomplished journalist interview an artist. I think one of the things the film you know shows you is uh, a kind of I would say you almost feel like you're eavesdropping on a conversation between two people because their guard is down and the language that they're talking with the intimacy of the recordings or how they were, uh, why they were created and the stories behind them maybe wouldn't have come if it was, you know, if, if Roger McGuinn was sitting across from, from someone else. So I think, uh, it becomes a very personal film and, and for the songwriters whose work we're honoring. And, and I think Jacob did a great job of uh, extracting that. Well, you said the word intimacy, and I was uh, quite struck by how open a lot of these musicians were with drug use and affairs and sex and, and all the elements that you'd expect in Los Angeles in the 60s. But um, were you surprised by how open the musicians were to tell their stories? Well, in some cases, yes because I had never heard those stories. And, and some of those musicians that I worked with as a record producer, some I interviewed in the very early part of my career, like Graham Nash, a journalist. And I think really, you know, you have to, have to give it up to Jacob really, because 
I think all of those artists, you know, that knew his work, obviously know his, where he comes from. And I think there was just an ease by which they felt we wouldn't manipulate their work or, you know, make them seem anything other than, uh, you know, soulful, honest people. And I just, uh, you know, everyone contributed so much. They gave so much of their personality to the film. It's uh, just uh, really very happy the way it turned out in, in regard to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the thread that obviously links this narrative is the music, the songs. Um, talk to me a little bit about the process of choosing the songs that were going to be performed at the concert and appear on the soundtrack. Uh, and also the songs that you chose to tell this story of Laurel Canyon in the 60s? Well, you know, it begins with the electrification of, you know, folk music. And, uh, you know, part of the process is, okay, what songs, you know, can you identify that have the narrative, which is uh, if the film is going to be about the echo of people's ideas and, creativity then what influences what and so while you could certainly say oh well let's take um you know uh good vibrations from the beach boys to me i don't think anybody needs to hear another version of that that's probably one of the quintessential 60 singles maybe be you know the singularly best california song of that period um but you know, if you think about in my room, the intimacy of that song, and then you think about, you know, Fiona Apple and her, and, you know, her own persona, I think it suits that. But clearly with Bells of Rimney uh, by Pete Seeger, uh, George Harrison hears that song uh, that Roger McGuinn electrifies. And he writes, if I needed someone, which goes on Rubber Soul, which Brian Wilson hears, and he does Pet Sounds, which the Beatles hear, and they then make, you know, Sgt. Pepper. And so I just feel like that was the kind of basis for the tent poles of what we were doing. You know, and then the same holds true with the song Questions. Uh question that Eric Clapton tells you in the film inspired Let It Rain. And Stephen tells you that Questions was taken from a song of, of Trudy Collins. <laughs> uh, I think it's called Since You've Asked. And so, you know, you see the lineage of, uh, of those songs. Um, but to me, the centerpiece of the film is really expecting to fly. You know, that's a song, Weather Buffalo Springfield, that really, in some ways, is about the end of a relationship. But we're using it, in a sense, to to acknowledge the end of an era. You know, for Laurel Canyon and the music California, I think there's like three really distinct bits. You know, the first period is the period that we're covering, which is where the bands come to Los Angeles they have big, they form bands like the Beatles with multiple singers and multiple songwriters. And, uh, then 
that period ends, I think, with, with the onset of psychedelia. And that, you know, gives you doors and, um, and love. And obviously then the San Francisco scene. But, and then the third period really is the sort of reaction to the psychedelic period, where it's the individual searching his own path. And that gives you the singer-songwriter period, which is, you know, which is where the bands then become Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, and then they go their own way. And Crosby leaves the birds, and he finds Joni Mitchell, and he brings her to California, and you have really the era of the singer-songwriter. So Expecting to Fly, it opens the film, and it closes the film. The version by the Springfield opens the film. Uh, and then Jacob and Regina... Uh, sing it in the end, and then you're left in the very end of the film, not to give it away, with uh, somebody playing a psychedelic guitar solo to <laughs> usher in the psychedelic era. It was a great ending to the film. I, I, another one of the songs that really spoke to me was um, Go Where You Want to Go, particularly, again, not to give things <laughs> away, but after Michelle Phillips had revealed the background of how that song came to be, and then hearing that song performed. It's a powerful song anyway, um, but hearing that backstory... And then seeing the new interpretation of it was was really something special as well. I thought. Yeah, you know that song is the first single that they released in in '65, um, and it really tells the story of the band and of I guess you know that was John's song to Michelle. And even though they were married, I think they both had different ideas about what the boundaries of a marriage were. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I just. You know, again, every one of the songs in the film is there because it does either tell the story of the band or it tells the story of the film or it tells the story of the time. It was not, you know, a uh, uh, jam night celebration. This was your first foray into uh, film production and uh, direction. How did it compare to uh, your, your illustrious career in the music industry? Well, I have newfound respect for for anybody who's a director because, you know, for me, making records, being in bands and, you know, all the various jobs that go along with that, the various challenges that go along with that uh, are one thing. But, you know, making a film is is like making a record in 3D. You're trying to tell a story in a song. You're telling a story in three minutes and you're hoping that you turn the corner as well. You have your instrumentation that you can, you know, use to underline lyrics that somebody's singing. But, but, you know, in trying to tell this story, um, I had some experience, obviously, as a journalist uh, to interview people and a writer. So I could write a treatment, but clearly it was, um, it was the, it was the hardest thing, you know, I have ever, done and I had luckily some great people to uh, to help me through it you know a great team of editors uh, when I wanted to try to do something and uh, you know great cinematographers when I wanted to shoot something to look a certain way uh, which at times I think people were a little frustrated with because they said it's a documentary and I just said but you know what I want it to look good and if it doesn't look good then people won't want to look at it like I'm good and I want it to look good I don't know you know it's I don't think it's about you know capturing controversy here I think it's about capturing beauty and that's what I tried to do so 
Well, I, th- I think you did it very, very well. Is it something that you'll uh, tackle again? Are there other plans for, for more movies in the future? Well, it's it's funny. I mean, I you know, when you make something and, and people respond to it a certain way and, I don't know, companies make money, you have the opportunity to do, th- to, to do something else. But, you know, I only want to make things unless I have a specific idea of something I want to make. And I do have a, a right now it's just not sure that with the current challenges the timing will be right for me to be able to do what I want to do so hopefully but it will but it'll be in the music space it's not going to be certainly not going to be Shakespeare <laughs> well uh, it's it's an absolutely great achievement I love the film so the film is called Echo in the Canyon uh, and it's available in Australia uh, this week and so Andrew thank you so much for taking the time congratulations on a great film and thanks for taking the time to talk to us about it Well, great to talk to you, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.